Hey guys, this is Robert Malazzo from Murmur. Before you listen to today's episode, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Audible. Audible is this incredible digital platform where you can listen to all of your favorite books and radio shows, TV programs, magazines. Basically, if you can read it and you can see it, you can listen to it through Audible. So here's an idea. Go to audibletrial.com backslash murmur, and they will give you a free month's trial because you listen to murmur. Again, audibletrial.com backslash murmur free month on them but believe me you are going to want to keep subscribing it's a great platform i listen to it in the car all the time when i go on road trips with the dog he likes it too don't ask me how i know i just know audible listen to it you'll love it and now quiet on the set quiet on the set quiet on the set scene one take 10 marker studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo and over the next hour together we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, homemade bread and circuses, director of Netflix's Last Chance You, Greg Whiteley is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you for an hour. Every Friday live on WHUPLP. Also Evergreen via iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, of course. Who doesn't? Murmurradio.com. One word, murmurradio.com. We have social handles, Instagram, Twitter, at MSFMurmur. Facebook is backslash Murmur Radio. You, you get the idea. You get the theme. <laughs> we also have an email address, murmurradio.com. Send us a message. Send us a tweet. We read those, and we read your emails, and we'd like to and keep incorporating them into the show. Download us as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You get it. You're smart. You've heard it. Now live it. <laughs> Happy to be with you again. Murmur. Today we have on the show Greg Whiteley. Uh, Greg Whiteley is a director, a documentarian, a filmmaker. Maybe a narrative filmmaker one day, we'll ask him. He uh, has directed some really cool documentaries, one on Mitt Romney, which is really super interesting. And the one on Mitt Romney was produced, presented by Netflix. He has a a new, uh, uh, it's sort of a child, it's kind of a twin. Uh, Last Chance You is a documentary series on a really interesting junior college uh, in Mississippi, and last season, Last Chance You, I think it's six episodes of season one. Super amazing. I mean, it's amazing. I couldn't stop watching it, and I'm frankly not one to binge watch anything. It's just not what I enjoy doing. But I did this one, maybe because it's six episodes, and I don't know. It just it hit the sweet spot, and season two is coming in days. So Greg is going to sit with us and talk about. 
last chance you, but it's a really cool opportunity, I think, for us to talk to him about the age we're living in in terms of sports documentaries. Now, it is that time. Documentaries are thankfully everywhere. I think it's one of the real high points of moving-based craft in America. It's not simply an American expertise, but in terms of if you look, if you had to assess what's coming out of American film, or if I had to and said what's really coming out that I, that works is working, and I think it's the documentary form, and it's been a while. I think this has been true for a while, but I think the internet has brought it home. Within that, I believe truth. There's a subgenre, so many subgenres of documentaries, maybe fewer than I'm assuming, but one firm bit of subgenre is are sports documentaries. And again, that's a definition that's defi- that's definable in different ways. We're going to define it as anything that has a subject matter steeped in sports or about, you know, what's cool about documentaries and sports is you can look at group psychology in really interesting ways because oftentimes you're looking at a team or a system. The Last Chance You has a, that Greg directed has a systemic view but also a very personal view. I thought it was great. Season two is coming, and I'm really excited. Hopefully there's more. We'll talk to him about that. It it got me thinking about sport. I grew up a bit of a sports head and an athlete in high school, and I loved sports. They were a gateway for so much for me, and actually I didn't really know it at the time, but they were a parallel nutrient to understanding story. And uh, I'm going to talk to Greg about that because I think there's a lot of really interesting cloak and dagger, maybe not so cloak and dagger, but storytelling in sports documentary is no different than sport, than storytelling in other forms of uh, time-based art. But sport in our country, sport in our world, I always find it fascinating to look at what are the most popular sports? I want to review a few thoughts and, and facts with you simply because it's interesting. And, and having traveled a lot in my work, I always find it interesting when I travel and wherever I'm staying to see what sports are popular in those countries. And certainly every country is different. And I always find, you know, there's the old expression that a country gets the government it deserves. I always feel like we get the sport we deserve. So I like to observe the most popular sports. And I'm looking at not popular in terms of playing. I'm looking at popularity in terms of viewership because there's often a schism. And if you look at in America, soccer, which you would call football outside of the U.S. principally, is more popular in terms of youth playing than American football. But what's more watched, what's more popular on, on the TV is American football. Now, we could spend all day analyzing that, and maybe Greg and I will get into some of the subterfuge of that or the inner logic of that and the inner turmoil of that. But I think one of the reasons why soccer, football, uh, globally football, let's call it soccer here, soccer isn't popular on TV. It's It doesn't reflect what we look, what Americans look for in sporting events. I personally love watching soccer, and I'm not trying to sound like I get something people don't. I just like it. I like the the metronome. I like the rhythm, the circadian rhythm of it. And that's really what sports watching are is. They sports watching the the sports that appeal to us appeal to what we go through in in a sense. I know that a lot of times when I want to relax, I'll throw on a baseball game because to me, watching a baseball game is like listening to a piece of classical music, but baseball as an object to be watched on TV is struggling now because the generations have changed and the popularity of the sports sport baseball has waned because of, of the watching of it isn't appealing to a younger crowd. Now, I don't, I don't want to get into marketing. I don't want to get into those areas which all, all affect the popularity of watching a sport. I want to look a little bit before we bring in Greg at the core sport itself. Greg Greg's documentary, Netflix, Last Chance You, talks, will talk about uh, this collegiate feeder system. And, you know, watch Last Chance You, and Greg and I will talk about it. But football is not 
is not the most popular sport in the world. I mean, American football is not. Football slash soccer is. And actually, worldwide cricket is more popular than um, American football. Uh, in some, in a lot of quarters, field hockey is. <laughs> and I'm not laughing. I just laughed, but I didn't mean to laugh at field hockey. I'm just saying it is interesting, those schisms, and you can, you can dive into that on your own. But American football... And if football will be the the primary table setter today, it, it it does say something about what American what what America is. Now, not every American likes football or watches football, but I do think its popularity, house to house, it it, it is it is a kind of religion. You know, and it's not only on Sundays anymore, but, uh, you know, the NFL is a, is a religion with all its foibles and followers. And and now, you know, there's a whole medical piece that but again, I, I want to stay away from the playing and to the watching. And I, I I wonder out loud and I can't answer it in the, in a few minutes before we bring in Greg. Why? Why is it so popular? But I do think it is part of the American mythology of work and rigor and discipline potentially or not and heart and sweat and puritanical ethoses and all of these ingredients and I'm I don't want to judge them now <laughs> I'll do that later today not doing anything um I but I want to remind myself and us listening that the I believe the sports that are popular in a country do reflect something about that value system not that that value system is the sum total of every citizen within the system duh but I but I do think and it's a fight we fight and it's a, it's as, as I get older I think it's it's a much more sophisticated problem it's not just sports it's celebrity it's any system that represents a larger a larger piece because it does reflect our home. You know, football is part of our home. Now, where is it on the list of things that define America? Everyone places it differently. And some don't even put it on the list. But watching TV, we can't say this is the golden age of TV and disqualify things like football and baseball and basketball. We have to put that into the calibration. But there's always more to it. There's more to the story. And I do f know, and this is empirical, that sports storytelling have now... Uh, in terms of a narrative or a Netflixian cinematic experience, much more engrossing, much more uh, uh, popular, ubiquitous. And there are people who would never know a sport from a hole in the ground who are watching these sports. You know, there's a great there's a great documentary called Senna on the on the Brazilian auto racer, and I know people who you know, would never sit and watch a Formula One or a NASCAR event, love the documentary. And again, so sports, you know, sanctifies itself in that way. Why is it? Let's talk a little bit about that today on Murmur. Really happy to have Greg Whiteley with us. I think there's a lot to get to. Hopefully we can get it all in. Greg Whiteley soon. Now this. Professional football in America is a special game, a unique game. Played nowhere else on earth, it is a rare game. The men who play it make it so. Hey, baby, let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs and have some fun. Coming now, buddy. We on our horse all day long. Let's just kick that ball all day long. Pick it up. Don't stop. Pick it up. Pro football is a mirror of early America, reflecting toughness, courage, and self-denial. There he is! Whoa! Whoa! Good job! Good job! Let's let him make a play out there, buddy. Nice job. Over Pirate 2. Ready? 45 blast! Yeah, 23! 45 blast! Keep him playing at this level now, huh? Keep it up, baby. Keep it up. We're going to be here all day, baby! Hey, now, little buddy. They're coming in. Just fun or what? 
wide open, not confined. X's and O's on a blackboard are translated into imagination on the field. can be one man rising above the obscurity of the grim, no-glory duty of special teams. It is a lineman clawing through the carnage at the scrimmage line and devouring a quarterback. Brown right, Fox two run on sir, right? The game is perpetual motion. A swirl of flying bodies in constant collision. A two and a half hour carnival of color, sound and action. There's glory in the legends of this hard muscle life, and there's poetry in each season made of sweat and strife. But now's the time to work and strain at a sport that tests the spirit and challenges the brain. Come on, come on, come on, let's go. Yeah, I'd like to have 75 degrees and sunny all the time, too, but that's not football. Do you fear the force of the wind, the slash of the rain? We're going to play a suit right in rain! Go face them and fight them. Be savage again. Whatever one thinks about the current state of movies in America, one thing that's not debatable is we are in a golden age, and we've been in a golden age of documentaries. Further to that, and I don't know how well folks outside the U.S. connect to this, we are in a platinum age of sports documentaries. There's so much great sport-based content. I locate it this way, 1994 95 when I first saw Steve James' Hoop Dreams, I literally floated out of the cinema. I hadn't felt that way in a long time. Flash forward to now, today's guest is a contributor to the nuance that this genre demands. His contribution to the sports world storytelling documentary style was Last Chance U. Uh, he's back for his sophomore year at the U. Uh, the other you, the last chance you. We are honored to have with us on Murmur Radio the director of Last Chance You. Now, season two approacheth. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Greg Whiteley. Greg, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you for being here. Like I mentioned, I am so thrilled and flattered to be included in this podcast. Well, you know what's interesting? Um, I mentioned Hoop Dreams 1994, and actually, the gateway drug for me has always been NFL films. Now, indulge me for a second, yeah. because I think people don't underestimate the sophistication of the Sables and what they were really doing, not, not just in how many cameras were on the field, the story, the storytelling. So that was my gateway drug. Do you remember watching NFL films as a kid or a young guy? Do you remember those days? It's so funny to hear you say that. And, and here's, here's why. There is a guy that uh, now teaches at Dixie College in Southern Utah. And um, he, he liked a, a film I did years ago. It was the very first movie I ever did, feature-length movie I ever did, called New York Doll. Right. It's a great, and great documentary. He, um, he, he then had become aware that I was still making movies by virtue of Last Chance You being on Netflix. He was one of the original camera guys for The Sables wow. in NFL films. And so once he said that, I'm just like you. <laughs> that I, as a kid, I could not get enough of that. So I grew up at a time just prior to ESPN. I mean, I was a I was about ten or eleven years old when ESPN first launched, and uh, so prior to that, I would anything I could do, I would wear out my copy, uh, my VHS copy of Football Follies. Oh my God! And, we used to trade those Football Follies like they were crack. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I mean, how, they were so great, and uh, the the sort of poetry, yeah. uh, the the way that they took, um, I, I mean, I can, there's so much that we ape from NFL films, both consciously and I'm sure, in my case, subconsciously in the making of Last Chance You. Yeah, I love that. And also, Steve James's Hoop Dreams is, uh, I think, a benchmark 
not just in sports documentaries, but any documentary. I just love, love, adore that movie. Well, not that this is a referendum on anything, but it kind of is because O.J. Made in America won an Oscar, you know, and we'll get to that. But I remember 1994-95, I believe it was the Oscars of 95, and Roger Ebert loved that movie and wrote this huge article about how criminal it was that it wasn't nominated for Best Documentary. Not that that's a referendum on much these days. And I remember that was actually the last time I saw the Oscars the year before Hoop Dreams because I was on that bandwagon. But, you know, just to go back to NFL films, I think, you know, now we have the NFL Network and we have all these kind of uh, ventricles of NFL dumb. But, you know, the John Facenda, the 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 music, the slow motion, you know, I, re- I can still see Chuck Foreman in my mind, you know, doing a spin out of a tackle and Walter Payton. We, we could quote that chapter in verse. And yes, that that was our entree into a lot of these great uh, athletes, but they were great storytellers, weren't they? The Sables and that whole team. I think they are underrated in in terms of their filmmaking chops. I think their use of music um, to push a story forward and keep in mind, all they had to work with is what they were able to film themselves on the sidelines of these games. They're not even borrowing the television feed. They're they're there with just sometimes two cameras, three cameras at the most, uh, filming on a sideline, and and they just are taking what they're given and with music and whatever, I I, 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 was, I never found myself being bored. I could watch those shows today. I, I could too, uh, speaking with Greg Whiteley. Uh, it's funny, when I think of documentaries, give me a response on this. You know, I, I mentioned in the opening that if we're in a golden age of documentary content, we are in a uber golden or platinum age of sports documentary content. Is that being overlooked? Is that is that kind of a term too firm grasp of the obvious? Or is this an important moment? And I guess that leads into the other question of where sports calibrate in terms of the world itself, which we'll get to, but let's take it in parts. Part one, how do you assess the time we're living in now in terms of sports storytelling in moving images? Um I don't know. This is going to sound so pretentious. Uh, there's, there's that scene. And did you ever see that HBO series, the John Adams series? Paul Giamatti played John Adams. Is that right? Paul Giamatti's playing John yes. Adams. Yes. And and he's in that scene where Paul Giamatti is sitting at a table and he's trying to convince the French to loan this young fledgling country, the United States, some money. Right. And uh, and and they're looking at him. And and this and this man says, well, tell us tell us about your country. I mean, what what do you what do you what type what how what kind of time and resources do you dedicate to philosophy and the arts? And and Paul Giamatti says, I first must study war. I think he says this. I'm I'm going to mess it up. As okay. years ago, so because I first must study war, so that my son can one day study the arts. Hmm. And I, I think we live in spite of. Um, we have significant dangers and troubles and economic problems that we face, but we have also experienced an unprecedented level of affluence. And as a result of that affluence, we can afford to dedicate copious amounts of time to watching and thinking about sports. Mm. Um, and you know, the old cliche that sports becomes this metaphor for all these other things. And it almost, lets us off the hook to spend so much time thinking about it. Um, the truth is we think about it and we watch it and, and even participate in it because it's fun, we enjoy it. Um, and I think at some level we start to feel slightly guilty. Um, I've just noticed, I've noticed that I've never done anything sports related. I've been at this for 10 years now and I've, I've made a movie about politics, I've made a movie about uh, glam rock. I guess I don't make them, they're not movies about those subjects, but they deal in those subjects. Right, right. Um, and I think there is a side of us that thinks, well, sports isn't, it isn't worthy of deeper contemplation. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's folly and it, it, you're almost... I've noticed we've been lucky enough because Last Chance U has been considered for certain awards. And so as a result, we get invited to these parties where there are voters <laughs> of the, those awards there. And then your job is to go and meet them. And, and, and in many cases, most of these voters have not seen your little documentary series. So you're, you're trying to make an impression so that they'll watch it. 
Um, and the moment you bring up the fact that it's about sports or football, especially, oh, I mean, you could just you could just feel this academic's eyes roll in the back of their head. Like, why, why would I, why would I sully myself with watching such? <laughs> who, who let thrill? him in? Who let him in the room? <laughs> oh, it feels like that, yeah, for more than one reason. But well, yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, and I was thinking about Bill Maher as you were talking because Bill used to have this debate on his show. I remember when Bill T. Jones, the great choreographer, was on. Uh, real time and they were arguing about art actually and bill was saying art is a diversion and he he held to that as a compliment uh and bill t jones argued the opposite and people you know form livelihoods and lives based on this diversion what what about sports and you know i'll take the cynics view and because it's actually something Mike Francesa talks about. I've, I'm a big Mike and the Mad Dog fan and, and Francesa fan, and he actually talks about it quite fluently, that sports is a diversion. Where do you fall on this argument? Okay, so now I'm going to sound super pretentious. No, go ahead, man. Yeah, well, say whatever you want to say. I mean, this is it. I mean, if you thought I was a douchebag, <laughs> you, you will now. Um, I'm sorry. All right, so I don't know. I don't know. I have not read a ton of philosophy. I know just enough. I've read just enough to be annoying. But Rousseau <laughs> had this exact argument. There's a very famous, and the only reason I know this is there. I had, a, I had a, a film professor that was kind enough to give me this paper that Rousseau had wrote, or somebody had written about Rousseau that I could include in my thesis when I was getting a, a, a degree in film. And. In it, he, there was, he was arguing with another philosopher whose name I forget, but this philosopher was saying the greatest of all the arts is theater because theater has this ability to instill virtue, to teach virtue to its audiences. And Rousseau says, no, you've got it wrong. Theater is the most dangerous of all the arts and it's because it pretends to teach virtue when really at its best, it's only a diversion. At its worst, it's a diversion that keeps you from those elements of true life that actually do teach virtue. In other words, spending time with your family, interacting with the poor, uh, going out and doing, you know, in, in Rousseau's day, it would be other good Christian things that you should be doing that, that teach this sort of, the kind of principles that allow you to be a good and worthy human being. And he says, instead, what happens is you go to the theater and you pretend that you are uh, you're, you're being lifted up. You're being taught all these virtues. But really what's happening is you are only going to go to those plays that teach you virtues that you already agree with. Because if you were to go to a play that were to attempt to teach you something that you didn't agree with, that process is so uncomfortable that you would get up and you would leave the play or, or at the very least you'd leave the play and you wouldn't recommend it to anyone else. Yeah. I think the same is true for sports. I, in some degree, there is a way that I catch my own self checking ESPN during the day when I am stuck with a problem, either at work or with my family. It, rather than dealing with that, it is so much easier for me to log on to that. Yeah, now, for, for, me, that, for me, it's dead I, spin. For me, it's dead go. spin. Yeah, it's it's like brain <laughs> well, it's yes. br it's brain candy in a way. I don't take I don't latch on to it, but it's a it's a counterweight to what I'm going through. Sorry, go on, please. No, well, but I I think to argue the other point, there have been stories about sports that I feel like have been ennobling, that as I've learned about them and I've encountered them, I feel like I'm learning things about myself uh, as, as, I'm, as I'm watching some athlete in some glorious way do something that I'm not capable of doing, uh, something heroic. You can, you know, there's tons of those athletes. You name one of them, Walter Payton. Just, just watching those slow motions. I'm thinking of one run in particular in NFL films in which I think there was eight or nine different attempts to tackle him. You're, you're hitting on something so in, important and precise, speaking with Greg Whiteley. And again, my last quote of the great philosopher, Mike Francesa, but he presents actually this other idea that sports, and this is where I get off on sports, like get off in a good way. Sports are one of the, the few remaining meritocracies. What do you think about that? Do you think sports are still a meritocracy? And do you think that's part of its timeless popularity yeah i'd never thought about that but i do think there is something uh appealing when when you're living in a day and age um 
that, that, that seems to become more and more gray, I, can, I think you make a really great point that there is something really refreshing about there being a winner and a loser, and it's easily discerned. And, uh, you know, when you've got one team that's lined up on the one-yard line, you've got a defense that's stacked up there to stop them, you are able to discern success or failure at the end of that play. And that is becoming increasingly less true in so many other facets of American life. Speaking with Greg Whiteley, it's funny, you know, when I think of the craft, the high craft of last chance you, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking about Robert Altman. I mean... And I'm thinking about Altman based on what you're saying as well. You know, Altman films also present that gray, nuanced ambiguity. And Last Chance You season one presented it in spades. I mean, I think, you know, if we want to call Buddy a character, Coach Buddy Stevens, you know, it's so infuriating and beautifully infuriating to watch that film because here's a guy who has his own temper and, 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 and inertia problems but he also has to ju- judge those of his kid. You know, that's really cool drama. That's really cool counterbalance. How much of that was in the strategy of the storytelling? Well, it's funny you bring that up, especially on the heels of the meritocracy question, because where I think what, what we find refreshing about there being a clear winner and a clear loser, I don't think we like that in our movies or books. Right. I, I think we want there to be um, a, 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 a gap that exists between what the author is intending to happen or what they may believe, uh, and then also the thing that they're attempting to convey. And there needs to be, I think, by necessity, a space that's granted for the audience to begin to participate in what's happening as well. And and the result of that is, by necessity, going to be some ambiguity. For us, our biggest fear is, uh, you know, being um, these middle-aged white people, you know, men and women who descend upon this small town in Scuba, Mississippi. The vast majority of us are from Los Angeles, and uh, it's going to be a culture that's different than ours. Our biggest fear is that we come in and we have these preconceived notions and we just, we, we just stamp out what's really happening. And we've learned over time, and we've been at this for a while, we attempt to just, with a very cold eye, but a warm heart, uh, allow what's happening to just happen. And of course, we're making decisions of where we're pointing our camera, but we try to let those decisions happen organically. We, we Obviously, we're not scripting out what's happening. We're, we're trying as best we can not even to hope for certain elements to happen. Sometimes that's difficult. But I think if there is a secret to what we do in Last Chance You is we are really doing everything we can to get out of our own way and to allow the form of our documentary, our tone, our style, even our music, our editorial choices, to grow out of uh, this new experience that we're having with these people and this culture that we're not super familiar with. You also face a challenge with time. You know, documentaries oftentimes will function on the premise of mystery, but yours doesn't in a sense. Like I could look up now what Eastern Mississippi's record was for last season. Like, I could know that. And I know some of the guys have transferred and transferred again. Like, I know that. So where does where does that play into the obstacle of the season, of the presentation of the finished product? If, if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have said it's a real problem. Because <laughs> uh, I thought, just like you, what you're trying to do is is tell a story, and if you do it right, you've got this ending that's just going to knock their socks off. And if they already know the ending, oh, well, what do you do? I learned a very valuable lesson when we were making this movie about Mitt Romney, who was running for president. We were fortunate enough to have it be selected as the opening night film at Sundance, and everybody knows the ending for that. <laughs> everybody. And I am yes. telling you, I was sitting in that audience watching it, and when it's revealed on election night that he lost, you could hear a gasp wow. among the audience. And wow. I remember just being That's truly cool. confused by that. <laughs> and I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. There is something that we do when you're an audience. I think you even do it with bad movies, but you particularly are willing to do it with good movies or good stories. You, you kind of numb a certain area of your brain and you allow yourself to have that experience where you can be surprised by the inevitable. Yeah. And so even though you may go online and you may know how the EMCC lines, you know how their season ends, 
I feel like, and I can take a lot of what, I take a lot of faith and hope from what we learned from Mitt, that if we do our job right, it won't matter. If we just tell a really great story, you can already know the ending, and it will, it's still going to knock your socks off. You reminded me of something a drama teacher actually ironically said. She said, she would always say, treat a new play like a classic, and a classic like a new play. So in a way... You have this classic where the season has has been litigated. Uh, Mike Nichols yeah. used to say a movie is about something and about something else. You know, Last Chance You is about yeah. is about yeah. this team, and now we're going to see the about something else. And people leave thinking about the something else. We're speaking with Greg Whiteley. Greg, talk a little bit about the again the word strategy going into season two. Did you want to do it different visually? Did you want to add cameras? I know you were playing with some zoom lenses at the end of season one. Did did you explore a different kind of visual vocabulary? Well, season one, uh, we were just trying to survive. (laughs) You know, our goal was we didn't want to make hard knocks. We wanted to, we think, I I like hard knocks. We wanted it to be, we wanted to feel like you're right in the huddle. We wanted to shoot this game um, from a perspective, if you could could be the most ardent film fan, uh, football fan, or you hate football. And you were still going to find it compelling. And we felt the way that we would do that is we would do our job in telling the stories of these people as they were sitting on the sidelines. You knew their backstories. You knew where they were raised. You knew what was at stake for them in this particular game. You knew what their hopes and dreams were. And you and we hopefully we did it in a way you were, you were kind of aching for them. You're were, you were, you were watching it uh, in anticipation of well, what will happen to them. And then we wanted to be right there, either in the huddle, on the sideline, as close as we could to them in the game. Um, sometimes that necessitated a zoom lens, but for the most part, we use these fixed prime lenses and just the camera people, I, aesthetically, it's just different. Even though you could compose the shot the same, you may be familiar with this pretty famous experiment that a cinematographer did where they composed the shot the same, one of them shot with a zoom lens, the other one shot with a camera that's very up close. And you can just feel an intimacy from uh, all the shots that are done from up close without the zoom lens. And, and so we, we just kind of laid money down on that strategy. That's what we want to do. And, it, and it, 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 it means that sometimes we were in harm's way. It meant sometimes <laughs> that uh, coaches and players were uh, agitated or, or annoyed, but we just let that all be part of the tension. And, and we, we doubled down on that strategy in season two. I love that. I mean, and cinematographically, cinematographers love primes. I mean, they, you know, w- when possible. So I I'm sure you didn't have to twist too many people's arms. That's another thing we're underestimating about the stuff skilled practitioners like you do in the world of sports genre creation. Yeah. Mediocre sports documentaries are almost as bad as watching paint dry. Bad sports documentary is like hell. The reason being is (laughs) the the experience of watching a football game, in my opinion, is five times better than watching it yourself live because (laughs) they have figured out, they have really dialed in. Think, watch it. It is, it is, you are watching a master shot list technician. It is, in some cases, it's like you're watching. I don't know, name a great director. You're watching Orson Welles. You're watching Preston Sturgis call out shots. Now give me a reaction shot of the opposing coach. Give me a shot of the quarterback on the bench that just got sent to the bench. <laughs> where's where's Jerry Jones? Right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or, yeah, so yeah. you're just, you're just going to recreate that wheel and just put it up on Amazon one week later. Why? Why am I? That's It's, it's, it's not as good. Yeah. It's, it's you, you want to hold the curtain. You want the, the orchestra to play before the main feature. You know, it's a great point. And, you know, when I think of baseball, baseball is kind of almost the opposite. It's a great oral. Ex- it's a, it's almost a better radio experience. It's a better oral experience yes. than a pictorial yeah. one. Football, one of the reasons it's 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 becoming the American sport is TV. I, you know, a couple more thoughts yeah. with Greg Whiteley um, before we let you go, man. You've been really generous with your time. I appreciate it. What's the danger in, in creating too much importance? around sports in a culture? Well, I think from an aesthetic standpoint, the danger is there's a lot to laugh at during the course of a football season. There's a lot of funny stuff that happens. And there is an absurdity that we don't shy away from showing about football. I mean, you think about what we're asking. (laughs) I still think it's really strange. The, The degree of sacrifice that is required for a Division I athlete to be eligible to play every Saturday, or in the case of junior college football in, in the South, every Thursday night, um, it there it can there's a 
there's a level of ludicrousness to it. And it, it deserves to, to, you deserve to have, we should have some fun with that. And furthermore, I'm kind of reminded there's, um, I'm a big Ira Glass fan too. He had become friendly with a producer for 60 Minutes. And the producer for 60 Minutes was telling him about this story. They had edited together this segment that, you know, what are they on 60 Minutes? Like 15 minutes long each segment. Yeah, roughly, and it was, yeah. it was something about insurance fraud or something <laughs> like that. I'm making it up. But, you know, they're interviewing this guest and they're doing this or, or this subject of the of the insurance fraud or whatever. And it's this hard hitting piece. And the producer was was explaining to Ira, like how long he had spent with this particular subject, how many times they'd gone back and filmed him over and over again. And, and Ira watches the piece goes, oh, it's this great piece, you know. And and Ira guys goes, you know, I'm thinking to myself, all that time spent with this guy. And nothing funny happened. Like nothing. Funny. And, and I do think that that, that yeah. is. I, I think there are these shows, particularly with sports, where you start to take yourself so seriously, and you're missing this huge opportunity. One thing that's really interesting about Last Chance U is the ki- the kids. And again, it's a weird term to use because athletes. We don't think they're kids. These are kids, you know? I mean, yeah. I've, I've been talking a lot recently about the insanity behind asking a 21-year-old or a 20-year-old to decide his or her major and their big life choices. I mean, I, I was also thinking, why are we making kids go to high school? Why are we making them show up at like 7.30? At what, in what universe other than film production, as you know? Oh, do we don't re- get me started I know, that. you know, like the good work like Last Chance You that's being done on these subjects is begging really interesting anthropological questions. The idolatry, and I say this because I do this on a weekly basis, man. Here's a little secret. I I, I can't stand how we idolize uh, celebrities. Like for, you know, I'll, I'll use my world, film and act. I can't stand it. And I'm, a second behind that is athletes in a sense. Does that go through your mind? Because when I watch a college football game, 0.1% of those kids will be professional athletes. This is a great question. And I... Let me preface what I'm about to say in that I, my, the way I'm answering this right now, this second with you, has completely been shifted and shaped by my experience with those good people in Scuba, Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been a lifelong football fan, I, and that's in spite of the fact that I'm conscious of the violence of the game, and because I read uh, ESPN, I'm conscious of the the possible long-term dangers of participating in that sport. What we try and do as a filmmaking team, particularly with Last Chance You, is we want to show up and with as much authenticity, just we want to tell a story. And we're hoping that there will be, there's all kinds of natural conclusions and issues that can be addressed, thoughts that can be debated. And we want those discussions to happen um, we want to be careful as filmmakers that we aren't we aren't tying up all of those discussions ourselves. Now, having said that, here's my opinion on it. Walter Payton, in that run that I was, you and I are familiar with on uh, NFL films, the images that I remember are him lowering his head at, like a ram. He does and, it several times. It's against the Chiefs, actually. Over yes. and over. Yes, yes. against the Chiefs. Yes, and. Um, Later, you watch that and it is, I am cheering that on. I, I am sure I've, I've referenced that somewhere, somewhere <laughs> in my life I've encountered something difficult and I, and I shouldn't give up and I know I shouldn't give up and I go, well, Walter didn't give up. I love that. I love and that. so I, I love that image. At the same time, Walter died. Now, I, we don't know necessarily they died as a result of that particular run or- of Or CTE or, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we know that some people are. We know that some people are dying as a result of the concussions uh, that they received while playing football. So how are, how are we, what are we, what are we to do with that? Now, as a documentarian, I feel like our job is to throw that out there and in, in, in its rawness and its authenticity and we try and do it in as entertaining a way as possible but um we want that discussion to happen i i i think i think we you cannot just blindly be a football fan anymore without recognizing the fact that there is a culture of our society that is having to make untold sacrifices to provide us that entertainment and we just have to be willing to look at it. You have to be willing to look at their stories. I'm proud that we have the opportunity 
to tell, we get to lift the curtain and tell their true stories. Uh, some of them have a shot at making it the NFL, but even if none of them make it to the NFL, this is the dirty underbelly of what sustains this whole culture that is a multi-billion dollar industry. And so I'm proud that we get to take an unflinching look at it. It's, it's tricky. It's a slippery slope because you're certainly not cheerleaders, so to speak, but you're also... No one's agnostic, 100%. You listen to someone like Troy Aikman. Aikman is in the booth every week on Fox, and he, he's also saying, I don't want my kids, I, I would be hesitant to have my kids play. So a lot of athletes yeah. are in this ambiguity as well. Just one other thought, because it's it's really super-duper timely. Uh, you guys were in the news. Um, an alumni of the show, Brittany Wagner, was a name that came up in Kentucky's, uh, some of Kentucky's violations. And this isn't a prelude to any sort of gotcha thing, because it's been all over the news. When that came out, was that strange? D- did you kind of have an out-of-body moment? Yeah, about that? yeah, it is. Because the headline that I read was, Brittany Wagner of Last Chance you, even though she was just one of the minor violations, that was the headline. Of course. So was, yeah, yes. and this one was the one that was self-reported by the University of Kentucky. Right. Um, it, it's a great opportunity to talk about how stupid the NCAA That's, is. Just, yes. So the violation, yes. just so we're clear, yes. the University of Kentucky was a, was a fan of Britney's by virtue of the show. They wanted her to come out and I, I presume to speak to some of her academic, some of their academic counselors to help with their student athletes. I'm assuming because she makes those trips all the time. She's great at it. And and they're getting cited for giving her tickets to the game. Idiotic. Idiotic. I, I mean, they haven't got something better to do than that? Not the NCAA, no. I mean, this 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 governing they, body this that has it. no law enforcement. Ability. Like, who... They're only powerful because we've we call them a thing. You know, they call themselves a thing. There's no borderlines around it, which leads me again into one of the last questions. Do you think college athletes should get paid? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's insane. It's insane that oh, here's the argument. Um, and um, I, I already can hear my wife in the room <laughs> next door rolling her eyes because she's so sick of hearing me say this. <laughs> And I'm not the first person to make this argument, but um, I, I, John Oliver did a piece on HBO. Did you see that when he talked about student athletes? Yeah, and the argument yeah, is yeah. the reason why we don't pay you is you're getting paid in this education, which you can't put a price on that education. The truth of the matter is I look at my own college experience. By far, where did you go to university, Greg? Sorry to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate, mm-hmm. and I went to a place called Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Okay, no football team at the latter. <laughs> yeah, you know, who who was quarterback at BYU when you were there? I I was there. Um, my was freshman year. No, I, I'm just after Detmer. Although he still remains to this day my favorite college athlete of, of all time. To watch that little skinny guy outrun Miami Hurricane defenders is one of my favorite things I've ever seen in my life. I, I, feel, a do- um, I feel a documentary coming on, but go on. <laughs> oh my gosh, if you, if you can make that happen, I am all in. I, <laughs> right. uh, I would love to tell the Ty Detmer story. But um, so I think of my own college experience, to me, college was a valuable experience, but not because of the Scantron multiple choice tests that I was taking. <laughs> uh, it was it was the hours that was spent hanging out, talking with uh, my roommates about, God, wouldn't this be a cool idea for a movie? We, we should, let's go up in the mountains, let's go shoot this scene. Or, um, hey, we're gonna blow off classes for the next week and we're gonna go throw the biggest concert outside our apartment that this town has ever seen, or or just hanging out for hours talking to some old film professor who has forgotten more about film theory than I'll ever know, and changing, totally opening up my eyes and changing my life. If you're a student athlete, none of that stuff happens. You don't get access to any of those experiences. Their schedule is so regimented that it even dictates the kinds of majors, the types of things they can study. There was one guy I know, a really bright kid, a good friend of mine. He was a quarterback at UCLA. He started out pre-med, and three weeks in, he was failing half of his courses because there just was not time in his football schedule between lifting weights, meetings, running film, that he finally, in meeting with his academic advisor at the football team, said, you've got to switch majors. So I think he switched to psych or sociology, which was a much lighter course load. It wasn't something that was particularly interesting to him. Um, But he goes, I could survive being a student athlete. And they were paying for my education. So this is what I had to do. 
that decision is being repeated over and over again, then you combine the fact that the least, the least valuable thing that is happening in your college education is actually what's happening in your college classroom. It's the stuff that's <laughs> happening around that that's the most valuable, yeah. and you don't get access to that if you're a college football player. Do you think anyone who laces them up on a college level, on a divisional level, D1 notwithstanding, should be uh, compensated financially? I, that sounded heavy-handed. Should get a stipend yeah. or something, yeah. a payment. You think they should? Well, I think I think it, junior college is going to be different because they're making much less money. Nonetheless, those players should participate in whatever profits are being made. Moreover, get rid of these silly regulations. We have this guy in um, season two who was uh, an aspiring hip-hop artist, and he wrote this really great song, which we use in the series. We, we film him recording it, and it becomes, we liked it so much, we used it as part of a music montage that carries us into the scene. We were not allowed to pay him. That would have been an NCAA violation. Amazing. And because he was good enough to leave that junior college and go play Division One football, we, you know, what, what can we do? I think there's a couple of easy fixes. The first is this. I think the moment you lace them up and play even one down of college football, your education at that institution is free for the rest of your life. If you want to major in three different majors and keep coming back until you kind of figure it out, if you want to go try and play pro football, either at the NFL or Canadian or wherever, or, you know, NFL Europe, wherever you want to go, arena league, and then come back 20 years later and continue education, that should be on that institution's dime because you've helped build that school. What you've contributed on that Saturday afternoon has helped pay professor salaries. You've helped build buildings. What, what's the other fix? What's the other bullet point? Well, I think it's easy to have them. Uh, I'm, I'm with all the others in that if, if somebody is selling your likeness, if your jersey is flying off the college bookstore shelves. The Ed O'Bannon uh, idea. Yeah. yeah. You've got to get yeah. that. Uh, that's you. I know. The, you're I making know. that money. I know, and that just seems like a no-brainer. I, I agree, and I, I'm a, I'm all for Northwestern students unionizing. I'm all for students, but you know, again, it's a weird thing. And we, we, next time we have you on, you know, the the ego system is also is also tricky. You know, these kids are rock stars. You know, and that's the other yeah. part of the system that actually is hurtful. You know, the science lab is there because they just won the 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 tournament, but you're also kind of like, why is why am I a second-class citizen. You know, I, I mean, I'm not... Th this is complicated. No, I, I agree. It's a, it's a complicated... And you know, and especially in football, where Nick Saban, you know, is is more important than the Pope, you know, and, and those kind of figures. It's tricky, man, because these a lot of these kids who play D1, and they do walk around like they're rock stars, and it's yeah. that, you know, that kind of ambiguity. Here's the last question, man. Thank you for... Are you I, kidding me? Let's do this all night. We don't I, have to go anywhere. Right? I, this is great. Would you take on a scripted, narrative, screenwritten sports film? Uh, forget, you know, the life of Steve Young or uh, Coy Detmer or Ty Detmer or the whole Detmer family. <laughs> would you do a scripted film? Because, again, it's like that... It's a different roller coaster ride, sports in real time versus sports scripted and premeditated. What about narrative sports films, the yin and the yang of them? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would. Um, the bar is is high for me because just as you said, when you get it wrong, it's so bad and, and it's so easy to do. And I think, how about this? We focus on the ones that, that get it right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Ball. Yeah, All right? yeah. I think another great one is Miracle. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I think, well, I, I, I actually think, think white men can't jump e again, even though it's yeah. ambiguous. Like, is that a sports movie? But Ronnie Shelton, who understands sports, little thing about sports movies, gets it right. But talk about that. What What is the magic in getting it right on a sports uh, scripted level? I think it's that it's not a sports movie. It is a movie about right. you. You have to nail certain tried and true elements of storytelling that have been true since the dawn of time, whether it's about sports or not. So a lot of times I think if you lean too heavily on the inherent dramatic elements of sports, you're gonna get it wrong because what will happen is, well, why didn't I just, why don't I just go watch, why don't I just go watch live sports, which is already being done in a pretty great way. Right. So right. I think 
um, I'm, I'm sure Bennett Miller would, would, would argue Moneyball. He could make the argument Moneyball is not a sports movie. Bull Durham, the screenplay of Bull Durham, it's, oh, the, yeah. it's the quote. It's the, the, there are quotes in your head. You know, it's the yeah. it's the Kevin Costner monologue. I think you're right. I mean, good, materi- I good material is good material. Do you think this, I promise, is the last question. Do you think there's a danger now, though, a little bit of sports documentary poop out because it's going so well maybe this is my italian paranoia playing in but last chance you which has such a it's such a great story but it's a system that's not per se going anywhere do do you know it's it's like if we did hard knocks with nick saban every summer it would be hard knocks with nick saban again you know where is the poop out level i mean do do you do you think about that or is that just too scary to think about in terms of (laughs) you know i'm I'm screwing you up here i don't mean to you know you're not i I, this is a great question i personally think this is this is where it poops out that there is one or two documentaries or documentary series that get it right they, as a result, achieve a level of success and cultural impact, notoriety. And now every TV producer, every film executive out there that deals in nonfiction films is going to go, okay, where's the next, right. where's the next sports one? Right. I, I want it. And, and they go to their people and they say, I want a last chance you. Uh, give, me, give me something like last chance you. So if, if nobody goes and, and copies the run and shoot offense, <laughs> then it, it probably is still successful. You probably still have uh, Leach coaching at Texas Tech. But because everybody goes and tries to copy it and then everybody designs a defense and they all go copy that, then you have to evolve. So the reason I think it's going to, there will come, there's going to be a few stinkers out there. There's going to be a few. I, I hope we're not one of them in seasons two and seasons three of Last Chance You. I hope we're lucky enough to just keep going. I feel like there's a, there are certain tools of storytelling that if you took this team that we have here and plopped us into any number of areas, I feel like we're going to come out the other end with a great story. What's really fun about doing sports stories is you have a definitive beginning and a definitive end. The season begins at a certain date and it ends on a certain date. And in some documentaries where I've worked on, that has not been true. There's a ticking clock like a great film, like a Hitchcock film. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. here, Here, I promise, is the last question. Should we be teaching filmmakers how to make sports documentaries in training programs? I think about this a lot. I'm curious to see where you stand. You know, we have documentary studies programs. What about the technique of sports docs? And would you teach a class like this? You know, I think that might be valuable. I should put you in touch with Phil Tuckett. He's that cinematographer from NFL Films. That's oh, at cool. Dixie College. He said the same thing. He he will. He said he tried to teach a class on on uh, on sports documentaries, and he's worried that nobody would attend. And and I think. I think the reason why that may be true is, you know, my, me and the guys that I work with, we do not consider ourselves sports documentarians. Yeah. We, we've just yeah. done this one thing and it just happened to be with sports. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of split. The one thing where I think this might be valuable in film school is just what you said. You're given the ticking clock, which it forces you in a finite period of time to figure out what's my inciting incident, who are my main characters, at what point can I discern my climax in this show? And, and, and then when it's the end, here's the end, what does the end mean for each of my characters? And it becomes this, I think, confined platform in which to learn some really good storytelling techniques. I agree. But, but other than that, I wouldn't focus on sports. The last chance you. Scuba Mississippi is as much a character, and that's thanks to you and the sensitivity of your team and the courage of those kids. They're more courageous than they know, and so are you. Hey, Greg, thank you, man, for being with us. I'd love to do this again on some other subjects as, as we go down the road. Uh, I, I'd be back anytime. You've been very kind, and, and, and what a thrill. Thanks for having me. We're pulling for you, man. Take care, and apologies to your wife. She can have your uh, soapbox back. Uh, we'll, we'll see you down the road sometime. Thanks so much, Greg. All right. I want to clarify something that I, that I don't know if it snuck into the conversation, and I was thinking about it the more the conversation, conversation went on with Greg. Super nice guy. Really interesting time chatting with Greg and would love to have him back. I don't think sports are a microcosm of society. I actually don't think that at all. I think what we wanted to carve out today or what I'm looking to carve out today in this episode with Greg is that the same thing that appeals to us on a a sort of dramatic level, good versus evil, 
you know, sounds, sights, the same things that stir us as we watch movies are the same things that stir us as we watch sports. And as I look back on my life, I think actually that may have been the prelude to looking into storytelling for me, maybe not movies, because I think I understood sports more intuitively or more early in my life than I did cinema. We want to thank Greg Whiteley for being with us. Last Chance You Season 2 is coming up on Netflix. Definitely check it out. It's great. I haven't seen it yet, but I love Season 1. I don't suspect anything less or different from Season 2. MurmurRadio.com. Every week, WHUPFM.org. Evergreen. You can download us. Do download us. Don't just subscribe. Download us. MurmurRadio.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. See you soon.